Good morning. As always, getting to church was an operatic affair. So if, if my energy seems weird, just assume that's the Holy Spirit working on me and not some kind of fatherly reaction to getting here on time and my kids where they belong. I want to talk today about the Beatitudes, these sayings of Jesus, the strangeness of them. But I, I want to start by reflecting on what is the Old Testament reading for today from the prophet Micah. And I want to think for a bit together about what it means to be a prophetic people. You notice Jesus said, blessed are you at the end, the eighth beatitude, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for so they persecuted me, and so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Meaning you've become prof prophetic yourself. You've lived these beatitudes in such a way that now you've embodied the prophetic spirit. So I wanna talk a bit about, about, about that, what it means. America has, America like Israel has a love-hate relationship with the prophets. A toxic relationship, you might say. Some of us are more American than others and therefore our relationship with the prophets is more toxic. But all of us have this kind of love-hate relationship with them. You know, you know why we, we hate the prophets, right? The living ones. We, we love the dead ones. They're safely stored away in museums or in memes. They're, they're, they're kept at a safe distance from us. We love dead prophets, but living prophets we hate. You, you know why? You know why we hate them? Because they remind us that we are responsible for what happens in the world. That what happens on our streets, what happens in our schools, what happens in our hospitals, what happens with our politicians and our police officers, what happens with our preachers is our responsibility, yours and mine. Some of us more than others, but all of us share in it. Some of us are tasked to bear more of the weight, but all of us have to pull some of that weight. We are responsible. And the prophets keep telling us that, that if there are people who are hungry, it's because you didn't feed them. If there are people who are naked, it's because you didn't clothe them. If there are people who are in desperate straits, you should intervene, it is yours to do. The prophets keep telling us that and we do not like it. No more than Israel liked it. They tell us, they tell us that God's providence is our responsibility. They tell us that God's justice waits on our mercy. And that's disturbing, that's disturbing. But I said we have a love-hate relationship with the prophets, a toxic one, but a love-hate relationship. You know why we love prophets, right? The, the dead ones, the ones that are safely stored away in museums or in memes, you know, like Martin Luther King, for instance. You know why we love them, right? Because they make us believe that we matter. They make us believe that God cares about what we're suffering. They make us dream again. And we love that. And so right at the heart of this toxic love-hate relationship is the living prophet telling us, you are responsible for what happens in the world. Don't look to God, you answer for it. And we don't like that typically, most of the time. But, we do have those dead prophets who remind us God sees us in our needs and sees to our needs. And they awaken in us the dream of a better future, 
that the injustices we're suffering will be put right. So with that kind of context, let's listen to Micah. Micah was one of Israel's prophets. Micah prophesied, there's, there's some disagreement about how long his prophecy lasted, his, his prophetic ministry lasted, and how exactly he was killed. But if indeed he was killed, we don't know exactly how he died. But we do know a few things about him. One is that he was from a relatively small town, but he wasn't, he wasn't a, forgive this term, he wasn't a redneck. He was from a small town, but he was, he was obviously an educated man, and his prophecies are mostly aimed at the prophets and the power structures in Jerusalem, at the politicians and the people who control what takes place at the center of Israel's life, and the prophets who give cover for that, the false prophets, the venal prophets. Let me, let me just let you hear him in his own words. But by the way, this is my Ken Boyer Bell Bonds Bible, for those of you. This is what I was given when I was priested. And it never, there's never a time that I open this Bible that I'm not reminded of the, the ominous <laughs> gift that the bishops gave me. All right, so listen to Micah. This is in the 730s, right? So the northern kingdom of Israel falls to Assyria in 722. And then Jerusalem itself is besieged in 701 by the Assyrians who were the dominant power at the time. And all of that has been foretold by Micah, who's this small town, well-educated agitator who's critiquing the establishment in Jerusalem and the, the ministries that are sanctioning the injustices. So this is what he says. First, he's going to speak against the prophets. Yahweh says this against the prophets who lead my people astray. So long as they have something to eat, they cry peace. But on anyone who puts nothing into their mouths, they declare war. And so the night will come to you, an end of vision Darkness for you, an end of divination. The sun will set for the prophets. The day will go back for them. The day will go black for them. Then the seers will be covered with shame, the diviners with confusion. They will all cover their lips because no answer comes from God. Not so with me. You can imagine right about here is where the fists clench and the rocks get picked up. He's saying this in Jerusalem to the court prophets. Not so with me. I am full of strength, full of the breath of Yahweh, of justice and courage to declare Jacob's crime to his face and Israel to his. Think about that. And then it gets worse. So he's addressed the prophets. I'm going to declare Jacob's crime to his face and Israel to his. And by the way, it's significant, right, that throughout Scripture, Israel is always identified as both Jacob and Israel, this, this kind of duality that it's the heart of the life of the called people of God. And Jacob, I think, represents that halting part of us, the unfaithful part of us. Israel represents who God knows us to be, but we're all always both Jacob and Israel. And both Jacob and Israel sin, but in different ways. And your sins as Israel are the ones that you don't recognize as sins because you do them in God's name and under the cover of God's anointing. 
These are the sins that actually damage most. But he says, I'm going to name both Jacob's sins and Israel's. Now, listen to this. You princes of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, you who loathe justice and pervert all that is right, you who build Zion with blood. You build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with crime. Her princes pronounce their verdict for bribes. Her priests take a fee for their rulings. Her prophets make divinations for money. And yet they rely on Yahweh. They say, is not God in our midst? No evil is going to overtake us. Because of this, since the fault is yours, Zion will become a plow land and Jerusalem a heap of rubble and the mountain of the temple a wooded height. We don't know how he died. We don't know how long he lived. But I can assure you, talking like this, he met with a lot of trouble. Probably also in his own household. Now, that is the living Micah. The one that scares us. The one that tells us America was built on blood. The one that tells us that our city was built and is built on injustice. And I'm no more comfortable with that than you are. But listen to the dead Micah. That's the one from our reading today. This is the safe Micah, the museumed one. You've seen this meme probably today. This is what he says, Micah, now listen to what Yahweh is saying. Stand up and let the case begin in the hearing of the mountains and let the hills hear what you say. Listen, you mountains, to Yahweh's accusation. Give ear, you foundation of the earth, for Yahweh is accusing his people, pleading against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I been a burden to you? Answer me. I have brought you out of the land of Egypt. I rescued you from the house of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you with Aaron and Miriam. My people remember, what did Balak plot, that king of Moab? What did Balaam answer, that son of Beor? The fruit of my body for my own sin, or I skipped the passage, from Shethem to Gilgal, for you to know the rightness of the ways of Yahweh. With what gift shall I come into God's presence and bow down before God on high? Israel is now asking these questions back to God. Shall I come with holocausts, with sacrifices of calves one year old? Will he be pleased with rams by the thousand, with libations of oil in torrents? Must I give my firstborn for what I have done wrong, the fruit of my body for my own sin? What is good has been explained to you. Now God answers, right? So what's being pictured here is God calls Israel together. God says, what have I done? Why are you responding the way you're responding, failing to respond to your responsibilities? Israel says, what are we to do? Do you want sacrifices? Do you want torrents of oil poured out in your presence? Do you want our children? And this is God's response. What is good has been explained to you, man. This is what Yahweh asks of you. Only this, to act justly, to love tenderly, and to walk humbly with your God. I told you, that's the Micah we love. That's the meme. What does God want? 
love justice, or do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before God. But when he was speaking it, when he was present to them and they were present to him, they felt the sting of it in a way we no longer feel. Because the point of both of those prophecies, the first one from chapter three and the one I just read, is to press on you and on me the fact that we are responsible for what happens in the world. The colic for today, the prayer that is assigned for the service, begins, Almighty and everlasting God, you govern all things. You govern all things. Think about the world we live in. Think about what's happening. And I don't simply mean what's on the news. Think about all the things that are not on the news, all the things that are happening in your life and the lives of your neighbors, the ways in which, in the language of the prophets, blood touches blood, the, the violence, the corruption, the ugliness. We're responsible for that. We're responsible for that. And it's hard to know how to square it. It's hard to know how to face what we are responsible for. And most of us, in response to that, we, 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 we have, we develop this kind of love-hate relationship with it. Again, we don't know how to feel the responsibility rightly. But we do know instinctively that the world answers to us and we do know we are called to be prophetic. We, and we love, in some sense, that the strength that comes when we can have a say in what happens. And so we're, we're caught in this kind of tension. And because of the way that evil works in our life, instead of being responsible, what we do is we try to manage. Everybody still okay? I, I promise, by the time this is over, you'll be able to meme it and it'll feel safe. Don't, don't worry at all, right? The... We try to manage our lives. Here's, here's one of those things you can meme later. You can either manage your life or you can live it, but you can't do both. And most of us try to manage our lives. We, we try to manage our lives in all kinds of ways. We try to manage our souls. We try to manage our bodies. We try to manage our condition. We try to manage what can happen to us. What does happen to us? We try to manage the lives of others, their souls and their bodies. We try to manage the soul of our nation. We try to manage the body politic. We try to manage. Why though? You know, when, I, when I'm talking about management, I mean trying to get your hands on things and control what happens. Trying to control yourself rather than just being yourself trying to control what happens rather than just living. It's, it's questions like this. God says we're responsible, and the manager in us stands up, okay, well then what am I responsible for? Give me the list. What's the thing, what is it that I'm actually answerable for, and how do I do it? That's a management question. We're called to actually live in the world knowing we're responsible, trusting that as we love God and love neighbors, love our neighbors, the things that are ours to do will show themselves and we will do them. You don't need a list. 
You can't anticipate beforehand what is yours to do. You just have to go out into the world trusting that God will show you what is yours to do and give you the strength to do it, and then you will do it. Father Paul said this last week, came out of our conversation. The way to be a disciple is to be open, to be aware, and to be ready to take responsibility. But if your question is, well, how do I know what's my responsibility? That's a management question. It tells you that you're living outside of your own life. Your soul is outside of your own body. You're managing yourself or you're managing other people. You remember the story of David is bringing the ark to Jerusalem. And this is, by the way, this is a sermon, not a homily. So just breathe for a moment. If you were here last time, you know the joke. The, David is having the ark brought into Jerusalem and the ark shakes and starts to fall off the cart. And what happens? Does anybody remember his name? Anybody got this? Uzzah, which is an unforgettable name, I think. He puts his hand out. And what happens? He dies, right? He falls down dead. The point of that story is that you don't handle God. That's not your job, that's not my job. We don't handle each other, we don't handle ourselves. That is manipulation, that is management. But I, I, wanna, I want you to think for a moment, why do we manage? Why do we try to manage our lives rather than live them? Why do we try to manage other people's lives rather than let them live them? Because we're afraid of death. We're afraid of death. You know, we, we live in a culture. We live in a world, worlds, that keep us from facing the fact that we are dying and that we are going to die and that everything we love is going to die. We are, and you've heard me say this before, but we're constantly insinuating to people that God will keep you from dying. But the God of the gospel does not keep you from dying. He raises the dead. And God is not going to keep you or me from living life as it actually is. He's not going to buffer us from reality, including the reality of death. Not just my death, but the death of the way of life I've known, the death of my language, the death of my culture, the death of my family, the death of all that I think I know and cherish. That is coming to an end. And we're afraid of that. We're terrified of that. But why are we afraid of death? Because we're afraid of God. Because we don't trust ourselves in God's hands. In that story I mentioned a moment ago where the ark shakes and Uzzah tries to stabilize it, there's of course an interruption. They have to stop bringing the ark up to Jerusalem. And David turns to God and eventually decides we're going to go ahead and bring it home. We're going to bring the ark home. But it has to be done in a way that honors God. And so they offer sacrifices. They bring the ark in. But once it's there, David starts to commit the sins of Israel, not the sins of Jacob. And he numbers, you remember this? He numbers the fighting men. And the judgment of God comes against Israel, against him. And in the middle of that judgment, David says something. I, I don't have time to get into this at length, but David is confronted with the threat of judgment that's going to come. And he says, listen, this is happening because of me. No one else but me. And he says this, it is better to fall into the hands of God than to fall into the hands of any human being. This is what it means to live rather than manage. 
to trust that you can put your life in God's hands, even in death. What does Jesus say on the cross? Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. It doesn't keep him from dying, but it enables him to die well. It enables him to give life in the way that he dies. And this is what it means to be a prophetic people, not to manage our lives or the lives of others, not to seek to get our hands on and control what can happen, but to trust that we have nothing to fear, not even from death, because our lives are in God's hands and underneath it all are the everlasting arms. And that brings us to Jesus' words, the Beatitudes. Everybody still okay? You with me? There was not a single affirmative sound made just now. <laughs> not a, I just registered that, right? For those of you who are watching online, you didn't miss here. There was not a single affirmative sound. Oh, I'm not going to ask that question. I'm just going to go ahead anyway in the spirit of Micah. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the first of the eight. And then the eighth that I've already quoted to you and we heard read, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now notice, we, we get a kind of bracketing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the persecuted, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But there's this difference. The poor in spirit are promised the kingdom. The persecuted have received it. The persecuted have received it. And they've received it because by living the blessings, by living the blessed life, mourning, meekness, hunger for justice, all of those steps, all of those rungs on the ladder that climb down into the childlikeness of God, that movement brings them into becoming a prophetic people. And then the kingdom comes. Prophets take responsibility. They know, we know, we cannot bring the kingdom. But we can let the kingdom come. We pray it every week, hopefully every day. Let thy kingdom come. I can't manage my life in such a way that I establish the kingdom. I can't manage your life in such a way that I bring the kingdom. But I can live my life in such a way that the kingdom comes. I can live my life, you can live your life in such a way that the kingdom breaks through or emerges. We can live that way. But to live that way, we have to stop managing our lives and stop trying to manage the others around us. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why are they poor in spirit? Because they've opened their hands. I'm almost done, but I want you to think with me for just a moment. What are the ways you're managing your life right now? What are the ways in which you're outside of your own body trying to control yourself, trying to handle yourself the way Uzzah tried to handle the ark? 
trying to make yourself be a certain kind of person? What are the ways in which you're outside of your body trying to control other people, trying to make them what you think they should be? What are the ways in which you're managing? And will you let God show you that that's rooted in a fear that he wants to free you from? We all know that passage, right? Perfect love. But do you ever stop to notice what kind of fear is being named? I mean, of course, perfect love, I think, casts out all bad fear. But that passage is naming a particular kind of fear. Fear of the judgment of God. What perfect love casts out is the fear of God. The fear that God really won't be there for me. The fear that God really isn't good. The fear that I really can't just trust God with my life. I'm gonna tell you a story and I'm gonna shut up. Pedro Arupe was a Jesuit priest, a missionary in Hiroshima, Japan. And on the Feast of the Transfiguration, August 6th, 1945, he was in Hiroshima when the bomb exploded over the city. By the way, think about that. It was the Feast of the Transfiguration when that bomb exploded over the city. Like it was the Feast of the Epiphany when our capital was attacked. As Christians, we should always notice those realities and grieve them. He's in the city when the bomb explodes. He and the priest that's in the room with him are thrown, knocked unconscious. When they come to, they rush out, he says, up onto the hill, onto the mountain to look down into a city that's no longer a city. He says the first thing they do is that they pray. And they ask God to help them. And he says in his diary, because we knew no human help was left. And he says that the inspiration the Spirit gave him was that the first thing he should do was clean the rooms where they were staying as priests to make a hospital for the victims. And they're able to bring 150 people into those rooms and care for them over the next few days and weeks. And only one or two of them died because it was a, a clean space, a safe space for them to recover. And on the next morning, at five o'clock in the morning, this young priest, the day after the bombing, he wakes up in that house at five in the morning and the first thing he does, he says, is celebrate the mass. And there's a line in his diary in which he says, and I celebrated mass amongst the mass of humanity who had no idea what I was doing. But here he is in the rubble of something we did, something we answer for. And he's holding up the body of Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That event and what followed it made him famous. And eventually after Vatican II, he was made 
the superior general of the society, which is in, in Roman Catholicism is, is a big deal. It's a really big deal. He's not the Pope, but he's pretty close to the Pope. And for about 15 or 16 years, he serves in that role and is enormously controversial. I mean, as, as saints always are. He, again, he's prophetic. And that means while he's alive, people despise him. Now that he's dead, he's safe to talk about. And then, and you can see why this is moving me. In 1981, I got to tell you this. So in June of 1981, he finishes his memoirs. And the very last thing he says is, I don't know when death is coming or how it will come. I don't even know that when it comes, I'll be able to say what I am thinking. So I'm writing this now. I believe my whole life is summed up in this sentence. My life unfolded according to the will of God. That was June 1981. In August 1981, he had a debilitating stroke. Sitting in an airplane on the tarmac in Rome after returning from a trip. Within not very long at all, he lost all ability to speak. He was in an infirmary, in the infirmary in Rome, the Vatican. And then controversy hit. The Pope at the time thought that Arupe was a little too radical and interrupted the process for the Jesuit order, which was unheard of, caused enormous blowback and essentially forced Arupe's resignation. So now he's had a debilitating stroke and now he's had his role, he's been indignified twice over. But he makes no public statement. And two years later, when they call the congregation to vote on his successor, the day of the vote, they wheel him in in a wheelchair, mostly paralyzed at this point, and they read what he had written. And this is what he said. I feel my life now is entirely in the hands of God. This is what I have always wanted. Now think about that. That's what it means to live and not manage. When your body fails you and your institutions fail you, and you've been exposed at the end of your life when you should be honored to indignity upon indignity, what should come out of you and me is I can trust myself to the hands of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for that's where the kingdom comes. Now, sanctuary, we're not Father Arupe. We're not there yet. We're not saints. People may not like you, but it's probably not because you're a prophet. Maybe it is. <laughs> but hear me. Don't manage your life. Don't try to control yourself. Throw yourself on the wisdom of God. Lean into the creativity of the Spirit. Live. Live. And I promise you, the kingdom will come in your wake. Amen.